All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the individual's opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis of investment decisions. You know, crypto in and of itself is just another technology that can help us get to a better future, but not if we aren't also willing to believe in the process of politics, to believe in the process of democracy, to believe in the process of collective action, to believe in the fact that we actually live in a world together and we don't just all live in the woods like by Walden Pond by ourselves. Welcome to the Internet 3.0, a podcast exploring the past, present, and future of the web with the leaders busy building it. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Maniba Lee, co-founder of Blockstack. We had the opportunity to sit down with Albert Wenger, who you just heard a second ago. Albert serves as a managing partner at Union Square Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on investing in disruptive networks. He combines a background in computer science, entrepreneurship, and economics to thinking critically about our increasingly online world. He's published a book, World After Capital, which details his unique perspective on the future of human civilization, technology, freedom, kind of everything. A German immigrant with degrees from Harvard and MIT, Albert's had a long and eventful relationship with the internet, diving in just as things were starting to heat up. I had first experienced it in 93. I had this funny moment where I was in a lab, uh, supposedly doing my statistics homework, and somebody next to me was at a workstation, and they would just click look around, click, look around, something else, click. I'm like, what are you doing? And they said, well, I'm surfing the web. I'm like, well, what's that? Like, well, there's this thing on your workstation, it's called Mosaic, and it lets you browse the web. And this was like, you know, maybe 10 p.m. Um, And so for the next four hours, instead of doing my stats homework, I just surfed the entire web, basically. Uh, Actually, I think there were more than a few thousand pages already at the time, but... (laughs) It felt like you could surf the entire web. And uh, I remember distinctly um, how deep an impression it left on me. I feel like you were very early in kind of like the internet era. And you you and Union Square Ventures as well ended up being very early uh, for crypto or what we, people are calling kind of like the next generation internet. What are the similarities that you're noticing between um, how the early internet was and what's going on um, in, in crypto these days? So I first, um, I wouldn't say I was necessarily super early. I, I looked back when I first started to write about it. It was in 2011, um, actually June 1st. So that's pretty much exactly seven years ago. Um, I think what was similar to some degree was just seeing people build new stuff Um and doing so without asking anybody, you know, for permission. So uh, it had that similar feel of, oh, here was a new thing. You could start using it. Uh, You didn't really need anything other than a computer to go use it. Uh, And you could be part of this network. Um, So many of the things that I sort of experienced when I first saw the web um, in, in the MIT lab, many of those same thoughts of like, oh, this is a new kind of network and one that you can join and anybody can join. Um, Many of those same things felt, uh, you know, it was like an echo from that 
past. There are a lot of crypto projects, um, and sometimes they're talking about the same things but using different terms. Um, one of those terms happens to be this like next generation internet. Some people are calling it Web3, some people are calling it Internet3, uh, some people are calling it the new decentralized internet. I think there's even a Silicon Valley show that we happen to get involved with as well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like what? What's this? You know, next generation internet to you? How would you define it? Well, I don't think of this technology as much as a entirely new web, as I think of it as supplying some missing ingredients from the existing web, and most notably, the crucial missing ingredient is a data store that's not controlled by a single entity, um, and. The web itself was a big breakthrough because it made publishing permissionless. You know, before that, if I wanted to give my opinion out, I had to send a letter to the editor of a newspaper and hope that they would publish it. And obviously, usually they would cut it down, you know, to some tiny fraction of its original size. Today, if I want my opinion heard, I can put it out on a blog and send a link to everybody, and maybe people will pick it up and tweet it, and it'll get spread. Um, if I was a musician, I wanted to put my music out, I had to find a record label or a radio station. Today, I can put it out on my own website or on something like SoundCloud. So this permissionless nature of publishing was a major breakthrough. But we wound up with this recentralization point of the database. To me, the most critical aspect of blockchain and cryptocurrency technology is the idea that there could be databases that maintain consistent state. So if we, you know send messages or if we post status updates or if we make a purchase or anything where we might want to look at a consistent state of the world like have i actually sent this message or not have i made this purchase or not um those we have now the technology to construct the type of database that where the permissions are held by the end users and the database as a whole doesn't belong to any one corporate entity to me, that is an extraordinarily important breakthrough on which many interesting things can be built. The other thing that I thought, and I think many people thought, was, oh my God, this is just great. Everybody can put up their own blog. It's all going to be decentralized. And of course, that's not where we wound up. We wound up with you know these very large near-monopoly type companies such as Google and Facebook and Amazon. And it's important, I think, to trace back to where that came from because it comes from an actual... Um, both benefit and maybe in hindsight one could say flaw of the web protocol, which is that it's a stateless protocol. So stateless doesn't mean that it doesn't belong to a state like Denmark. Uh, stateless means it doesn't remember anything. So when I make an HTTP request um, and then I make a subsequent HTTP request, there's really no clear mechanism for how to create memory. Um, and um, that makes the protocol very easy to implement, um, which was a great benefit. And I'm glad it was designed that way. Um, but it made things that ought to be potentially simple, like a shopping cart, actually quite hard. And so, you know, that's why what we saw happen instead was Mark and Dresen, when they shipped Netscape, they invented the cookie, which is a way of keeping data on the local computer instead basically the browser writing files to your local disk. And so the way you would implement a shopping cart was make a request, put an item in the cart, write that into the cookie file on your on your machine, put another item and so forth. And each time you sent the cookie along and that way they can show you your shopping cart. And that method was a big um, improvement, but it had some problems because now if I put stuff in my shopping cart on my work machine, I go home, 
because the stuff actually sits on my physical work machine. I don't have anything in my shopping cart at home. So I think pretty quickly from there, people realized, well, the smart place to keep this is in a database on the server and just use the cookie as an index to tell you who the user is. And so what happened essentially is that we wound up with companies that are gigantic databases. So Facebook, if you look at it, it's really just a gigantic database of people, their friend graphs, and their status updates. Okay, they've added lots of other little things, but at the end of the day, that's the database. And that database is kept on Facebook's millions of servers, and each one of us gets a partial view into that database. Only Facebook has the entire database, and that gives Facebook extraordinary power within that system. Amazon, at the end of the day, it's a database of credit cards, SKUs, and purchase histories. Again, we can kind of see our own credit card information, our own purchase history, but they have it for everybody. And that turns out to be incredibly powerful, these data assets. They have very, very powerful network effects. And for any of you at home that have never heard of what a network effect is, well, actually, I'll let Albert explain it. A network effect is any time... Let me start somewhere different. The, the industrial age was all about economies of scale. Economies of scale are, as you make more of something, you can make those things more cheaply. As I make, if I make a hundred cars, it will cost me a lot of money per car. If I make a thousand cars, it'll go down. If I make a million cars, that'll go down a lot. And so people were trying to crank out as many widgets as possible because as you achieved scale, your marginal cost was coming down and you could mean you could sell more cheaply in the market. The information age has all been about network effects, which is as I add more nodes, so in this case, as Facebook adds more users, it can deliver more value to all users. It's you know similar to thinking about the fax machine. Um, the first person to have a fax machine, it's pretty useless. Uh, you need at least two people, but once almost everybody in business has a fax machine, a fax machine is incredibly important. In fact, it gets to the point where it becomes an essential tool. I remember for many years, you know, you couldn't be in business without having a fax machine and a fax number. And, you know, today, um, if you think about some of these big network effects businesses, it's hard to imagine how you would spend your day without using them. Uh, you know, very few people um, are either not on Facebook, have never been on Facebook, or have taken themselves off Facebook. Google is another network effects business. Why? Because every time somebody searches something, Google learns a little bit about what it's, it is that they were looking for. So we all collectively make Google smarter. That's a good thing because it means you get higher quality search results, at least in theory. But it's also very hard to envision you know, not using Google search at all. We have a portfolio company called DuckDuckGo that has search and it's quite good, but um, every once in a while, even though DuckDuckGo is my default search engine, I use Google because for certain things, they produce better results. And so, you know, just like the fax machine became this thing that you had to have because the network effects were so strong. Some of these systems are similarly, I mean, who doesn't buy at Amazon, for instance? It's not impossible to live without having an Amazon account, but it's a lot harder. When did you personally realize the maybe the dangers of uh, these massive centralized neo-monopolies and, and start sort of actively being interested and maybe even investing in decentralized solutions? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I should probably look it up on my blog. Um, I think we became concerned about the power of network effects relatively early on because... 
network effects were central to our investment thesis. And so, you know, we were the first investors in Twitter. We were the first investors in Tumblr. Um, we've seen what, you know, how successful network effects can be. And so we were concerned relatively early on that these network effects were going to be so powerful that we were going to wind up with highly, highly concentrated markets um, with, you know, one or maybe two or three players um, that are absolutely dominant in their respective space. I think that's where we are today. If it weren't for, you know, Chinese and to some degree Russian protectionism, you know, markets that are sort of cut off from the rest of the world, I think those markets would be equally dominated by the same global players. It's They've chosen to cut their markets off, which is why they've evolved to some degree their own set of companies. But that's really the only competition that exists today um, are, are, you know, Chinese internet companies that have built themselves up to a similar scale as some of the Western internet companies, and sometimes, sometimes in excess of that. What makes Albert so interesting is the way he brings a fusion of ideas to thinking about these changes. Listen to the way he answers this question of Manape's. You have some really interesting views about privacy, in the sense that they might not be mainstream, but they are actually very important given the fact that what is the world that we are about to enter. I grew up in a small village in Germany, and um, when you didn't leave your house, neighbors noticed, and they knew that you didn't hadn't left your house. And um, now you could look at that as a bad thing, like you know, why would I want my neighbors to know that I didn't leave my house? But you know, neighbors would actually come over and say, "Hey, are you okay? Should I bring you some food? You know, if it was the winter, should I shuffle your driveway? You know." So I grew up in a setting where the kind of you know, privacy that we sometimes think about when we live in big cities where, you know, you may or may not know anybody who lives on, you know, your floor. Um, I sort of grew up with a different conception. Now, I also grew up in Germany, and of course, Germany has maybe the strongest uh, Datenschutz or data protection um, laws and certainly was instrumental in driving the GDPR efforts. My view is, however, that privacy is not a value in and of itself. Rather, it's a value that helps us make other things possible. So what are these other things? For instance, my ability to speak freely, uh, if I feel that there's going to be a lot of repercussions, if it's known that I was the one who spoke, um, that's one of the things that's potentially made possible by certain types of privacy. Um, my ability to uh, live a certain lifestyle um, that may or may not be um, currently accepted by the public, um, that's something that, you know, privacy makes possible. There is a counterside, though, to this, which is that I think there are other ways of potentially enabling people to live freely in that way. If I'm free, as in economically free, informationally free, and psychologically free, then I can be free to live a certain lifestyle um, because other people, and also the government have limited means of doing things against me. If I live in a democracy that follows the rule of law, government can't simply lock me up because they don't like what I said. Um, now, why am I concerned about us going down a privacy road? Um, I think that many of the attempts to uh, enforce traditional notions of privacy in a digital world are things that are good-intentioned, well-intentioned, but are going to massively backfire. 
the compliance cost for GDPR is very, very, very high. Um, also, you have a lot of legal exposure um, that adds cost to businesses. So it's a bad piece of regulation because I think it'll further ensconce the big existing digital uh, monopolies. If you Google, if you Facebook, it's relatively easy to comply. Even if you get hit with a penalty, you just pay the penalty. Not a big deal at the end of the day. Um, if you're a small company that's trying to compete, um, there's a lot of overhead involved here. It does nothing, GDPR does nothing to address the market power issue. Instead, it does the opposite. It makes it harder for new entrants to go compete. So that's an example of sort of negative, I think, consequences. Um, if you think about encryption, I'm all for encryption. It's perfectly fine to end-to-end -end encrypt things. I use encryption when I communicate with my bank. I don't want somebody else pretending to be me and debiting my account. Um, but on the other hand, there is no assurance of perfect um, information privacy that's compatible with general purpose computing. So let's say I sent uh, my MRI um, to a doctor. Well, they got to look at the MRI. That means they got to use a computer to decode the information. Now, do I want them to use a general purpose computer or a highly specific lockdown machine? The only way to really assure that my MRI doesn't get leaked would be to really try and lock down the endpoints that the, that the uh, doctors and nurses and so forth use. To me, again, that goes very much against innovation. Lockdown endpoints are not good for innovation. That means that there's somebody centrally who says what software can be installed. So now if the doctor says, hey, I have this brand new, really cool MRI software, like the central control says, oh, well, yeah, that's not an approved vendor, so we can't, you can't use it. Um, and so I think in this desire to protect privacy, we're likely to go down a road, potentially go down a road, of computation that's actually less and less controlled by us rather than more controlled by us. You know, already today, you know, most phones ship with a secure element. People say, well, that's great. That's a place you can store your private keys and they're secure. But usually secure element also means the vendor now has a piece of compute on the device that only the vendor controls and that only the vendor and that the vendor often uses to store the vendor's keys and to say things like you can only install software that has come through the app store. So I just think there's a really bad trade-off here that we're currently making because we are trying to protect privacy for noble reasons, for good reasons, um, but we're not recognizing all the unintended negative consequences that it'll have. Um, and so uh, my opinion is we need to construct a world where we're protecting people much more than we're protecting their information. So if my medical record gets out there, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? Well, in the current world, it's a lot. I could lose my job. I could lose my health insurance, etc. I want to make sure we construct a world where if my medical record gets out there, it's at most a so what event. Um, a good way to think about this sort of today is um, if you look at countries like Sweden, in Sweden, everybody's tax record is public already. Part of what that means is if my tax record gets leaked, well, it's already public. But if in the U.S. my tax record gets leaked, now maybe somebody goes, oh, you know, um, that's a, a person who, you know, has made more money than I thought they did, and I'm going to write a bad story about them. You know, you can see sort of all sorts of potential consequences. The way people have approached the privacy problem often is what I think of as a partial equilibrium analysis, which is you take the world as it is, and then you say one person's information gets leaked, and then obviously it tends to be very bad for them. But I think if you look at it more through a, hey, 
what if we created a world where people would be much more comfortable in sharing a lot of this information? How much better could the world be? Again, let's stick with medical records. Today, there are only a few pharma companies in the world that matter. Um, why? Because they have the financial resources to gather up enough data to study whether or not a drug will work or not. If you were an independent researcher, there's really no way you have access to even a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of data you would need. Part of that is because all this data is being kept private. If we constructed a world where people would feel much more comfortable, like I'm in the great comfortable situation of saying, hey, you know, I have this particular issue. I can talk about it online. I don't need to worry about, oh, you know, Albert can't use his arm, so we should fire him from his job. I'm not in a job where I need to use my arm. But if we constructed a world where people could be much more open about that, I think lots of good things would flow from that. And that's really my concern. My concern is not protect privacy, but create a world where you can actually feel free to lead a more open life, a life that's more in sync with who you really are, um, because there's less that other people, employers, the state can do against you as a result of knowing something about you. Albert's thoughts on where we could go in the future are informed by where we've been and how our civilization has developed. If you go all the way back to 10,000 plus years, so Homo sapiens emerged 250,000 years ago, and at the time we were foragers, and the scarce factor was food. Your tribe either found enough food or it starved or it migrated. And then about 10,000 years ago, we invented agriculture, which was a series of inventions. It's how to seed things, how to irrigate them, how to domesticate animals. A whole bunch of things came together, and the scarcity shifted from food to land. Um, you either had enough arable land and your society would prosper and grow and you could have arts and armies and so forth, or you didn't, in which case your society would shrink and be susceptible um, to collapse. Then nothing happened for nearly 10,000 years. Then we had the Enlightenment. Then we really cranked up um, the dial on science and we invented um, things like steam power and electrical power and chemistry and mining and so forth. And the constraint shifted from land to capital. All of a sudden, we could make fertilizer, we could produce a lot, we could grow a lot of food very rapidly and fairly dense uh, and very high density. But the thing that became the new constraint is how quickly can you build factories, cars, transportation, infrastructure. And so what's happening today is that I believe with digital technology, that constraint is shifting one more time. And it's shifting from the constraint of capital to, to the constraint of attention. There's a limited amount of attention to go around. You know, yesterday is gone. So whatever you paid attention to yesterday in your life, that's what you paid attention to. You can't go back and say, you know, I really wanted to spend an extra hour with my family. It's just, you can't do it. You know, it's like, it's gone. Now, why does this matter? It matters because... In the transition, if you look at the last transition from the agrarian age to the industrial age, what happened was when industrial technology first emerged, the people who were in power politically were the people who controlled land. They were the aristocracy, the churches. And when they saw what industrial technology could do, they didn't say, oh, here comes the industrial age, the constraint has shifted to capital. No, they were like, great, we can have more land. We're going to build tanks and battleships and we're going to have more land. I mean, all the way through World War II, World War II still was a war about land. It was Hitler's crazy idea that there wasn't enough land for the Aryan race. And it's easy to go back and say that people should have known that Hitler was crazy, but like the land metaphor made sense for people. People had thought about the world through the lens of land for nearly 10,000 years. And so it made total sense to people. 
Now, we're repeating this mistake in a way. Why? Because for the last couple hundred years, we've thought about the world in terms of capital. It started pre-World War II, but certainly, you know, for the last 80 years, we've thought about nothing but capital and capital formation, and markets have been extraordinarily successful at capital formation. The reason we can record this podcast on this amazing equipment, and the equipment isn't even any expensive, is because capital formation in a market-based economy is so incredibly successful. But what we're doing now is we're again facing one of these transition periods, um, but we're looking at all the technology through the lens of capital instead of looking at it through the lens of knowledge. And so what does that mean? When we see what computers can do, we don't think, oh, we ought to make all the world's knowledge available to everybody. We mostly think, oh, how can we have another billion dollars of market cap? And I'm part and parcel of that, you know, because the way venture capital firms earn returns is be invest in things that then, you know, go public or get bought. But we have sort of fundamentally the wrong lens. And so the dystopian outcome here is where in the service of capital, in the service of more market cap, of wealth that's actually not very widely held. I mean, you know, the number of people who own Google is actually, even the public markets, isn't super widely distributed. So I think the dystopian scenario is simply one where if you are um, wealthy, if you work for uh, one of these companies, or if you own part of one of these companies, you will be able to travel relatively freely, you will have access to great healthcare, you will um, you know, live in a degree of safety. Uh, and if you don't, um, you know, in a way we're regressing. Um, we're already seeing this in the US, for instance, you know, life expectancy for people in certain parts of the country is falling, it's not rising. Now, how sustainable is that over a long period? I don't think it's very sustainable. I think that it's is what brought us you know, in the transition from the agrarian age to the industrial age, it's that mistake of not recognizing that something fundamentally new was happening. That's why we hung on to the agrarian system for such a long time. And that's ultimately why the transition to the industrial age wasn't completed until we had two world wars. And so much of my writing and speaking is because, hey, let's not repeat a mistake that we only made like 120 years ago again uh, right now by seeing something that's fundamentally new and saying, no, no, this is not new. All it takes is a little turn of the interest rate dial over here, a little retraining program over here, and everything will be fine. And I would argue the way we wound up with Trump is because politicians all around were saying, that's what we're going to do. There's nothing to see here. Um, and people were like, gee, it sounds wrong to us. You know, like where you live, maybe it seems to work great, but where I live seems to not be working. Um, and what that allows, it allows for somebody with a very simple message, because we don't have a message of saying, hey, we actually have a new idea, we have a new social contract. So if you think back to the emergence of the industrial age, um, I think if we had implemented many of the ideas of this new social contract, like pension systems and healthcare, public healthcare, and if, if we had gotten around to doing those faster and at better scale, I think we could have avoided a lot of the things that actually happened. Um, and so right now, I think we once again find ourselves in a big transition where we don't actually have a forward-looking program. And because we don't have a forward-looking program, the people who take the stage are people who have retrograde programs. They're like, make America great again, which is returning to some fictional you know, state, um, maybe early post-war period where everything was great. But you can't get there from here. You know, I think 
you can only move forward. And so that's, I think, the big risk we're facing. And, you know, crypto in and of itself is just another technology that can help us get to a better future, but not if we aren't also willing to make, to believe in the process of politics, to believe in the process of democracy, to believe in the process of collective action, to believe in the fact that we actually live in a world together and we don't just all live in the woods like by Walden Pond by ourselves. How do you see the internet now and I guess into the future either enabling or maybe hampering our efforts to come to consensus in a democratic way? Yeah, so I think about the internet and crypto as these amazing tools that let us construct a world where anybody can access any knowledge and share anything, learn anything, contribute to almost any issue. Um, that is incredibly powerful. To make that work, there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. And in the book, I talk about three freedoms that I think are crucial to making a good transition into the knowledge age possible. The three freedoms are economic freedom, informational freedom, and psychological freedom. Economic freedom to me is some form of universal basic income. The reason I think that's critical is because it will let us embrace automation rather than fear it. There's a lot of things that we can and should be automating as quickly as possible because it's not a good use of a human. It's not a good use of a human to drive a truck across the United States. If a machine can drive that truck, that's what we ought to make happen. But we ought to do it in a way that the people who are currently driving trucks aren't completely with their back up against the wall and don't know how to survive. People confound two things. We're never going to run out of things to do. There's a million and one things to do and always new ones. And important ones, important either in a very small circle, like taking care of somebody who's sick, or in a very large sense of like helping, you know, work on the asteroid threat, right? Um, so it runs the gamut from very small to very large, all very important things. But what we do is we confuse that with having a job that earns an income. Many of the most important things either don't earn an income at all because there's nobody paying for it or won't earn an income for a very long time because you have to figure out something very fundamental and foundational before you could maybe have a product. So I think we're very, in the debate, we're, we keep confusing where people say, oh, you know, humans will always think of things to do. Totally agree. But we have to separate that from, is that a thing that when you do, you also get paid? And once we're willing to decouple those two things, then I think a lot of things become possible that currently aren't possible. So, you know, I always use toilet cleaning as an example. As long as I can pay somebody minimum wage to clean toilets, what's the incentive for somebody to go and build a really high quality, affordable toilet cleaning robot? It's very low because I actually have cheap labor uh, as an alternative. The reason I'm a fan of universal basic income is because it makes people be truly free with regard to how they allocate their attention. And I said that before, attention is the fundamental scarcity. As long as I'm basically forced in, you know, for some people to work two or three jobs and you know, I'm subjected to automated scheduling systems that sent me, you know, just when I actually need to take my kid to school, um, they actually require me to be at the Starbucks. Um, as long as we're not free from those systems, I think we are not fundamentally free. Informational freedom is how come that I have the supercomputer in my pocket and I can't actually program it. That's a really bad situation. Um, there are lots of other things that impinge upon the creation and sharing of knowledge that I think we need to rethink. 
Um, I don't want to abolish the copyright system, but we've certainly gone overboard on how easy it is to get copyright and how long it persists and how much you can lean on the state to enforce it on, on your behalf without paying anything. Um, and then the, the third freedom that I talk about in the book is what I call psychological freedom. And this is the one that I think we each need to work on the most individually. So our brain did not evolve at all in an environment where there was information coming out of everything you touch, right? I mean, our brain evolved in an environment where when you saw a cat, there was an actual physical cat. Now I can give you millions and millions of an infinity of cat pictures. And so why is that important? It's important because so much of what we see online, that's the sort of people call the dark side, the negative side, you know, it's people yelling at each other in comments, people using threats, people using um, insults, people um, not at all trying to understand what the other side is saying, not at all feeling any emotional connection, not looking through, clicking through a link and saying, does this actually make sense before retweeting it? Like all of those things are things that our brain is primed to do very easily because they come from a totally different age, you know, where you have an emotional reaction and then your your brain is like, okay, this is a kind of, you know, a situation where I should probably be prepared for a fight, you know, or I have this quick dopamine hit in my brain because I'm seeing this little bit of information and it confirms what I already want to believe. And so we each have to do a huge amount of work so that we don't fall prey to those things. Um, And that's going to take time because the technology has grown very, very rapidly and our brains have evolved over millions of years and we all have this capacity within us um, and you can do things like, you know, breathing exercises and meditation and we can even build technological systems that like you know before you send an email would say hey do you really want to send this email or this tweet like do you really want to you know use the word ape here i think that's work that needs to be done those three freedoms powerfully interact with each other and i think they will allow us to get to a positive version of the knowledge age if we sort of can work on increasing those freedoms one of the things that you talked about um, in one of your um, public talks that has stuck with me is this idea of upgrade your technology all you want. At the end of the day, we have to engage in a question of what are our values. Absolutely. The technology itself doesn't have any values. Um, fire is a great technology. It's one of the earliest human technologies. I can use fire to cook. That's a really awesome thing. I can use fire to burn down somebody else's house. That's a terrible thing. Um, I gave the blockchain example earlier. I can use it to maybe give people title that to you know land that's not easily sensible. I can use it maybe to bribe politicians more effectively. We can't get beyond. We need to decide what we want. Now, who's the we in this? I don't think we're at a stage where 2 billion people, 7 billion people can collectively decide what we all want because we still want very different things, and that's not bad. Um, But what that means is we need to have political processes, and for me that's mostly some form of democracy. Um, I think there is a lot to be improved about how democracy works. It's another area where we've gone backwards rather than forward, certainly here in the U.S. in the last 20, 30 years. But I think using democratic means of figuring out what it is that a subset of people want and how to give it to them, um, that's a very powerful thing, and we shouldn't throw that out the uh, door. 
So at the USPCO summit, I think there was a discussion about how you guys are focusing a lot on this like next generation, like startups, crypto startups, but still there's growth happening on the traditional internet, right? And, and you guys keep investing there as well. How are you thinking of like balancing these two? Yeah, the way I think about um, where we are today is that there are very large swaths of the economy that have barely been begun to be touched by digital technology. Uh, I'm sitting here with my arm, my right arm in a sling because I had some shoulder surgery about a week ago. And in the run up to that, you know, I spend a bit of time getting various tests done at various doctors. And it felt almost entirely like a pre-internet process. Yeah, I was able to maybe get an appointment online, but then when you show up at the doctor's office, you get a stack of papers. And it's basically the same stack in some small variant at every office you go to. They don't communicate with each other. Um, They don't give you anything back in digital form. Like if you want something back, you have to go request it. Then they give it to you in some weird, you know, like scratch off portal thing. You know, it's just all feels sort of... web technologies circa 1999 at best. So you look at healthcare and that's has so many structural issues that make the adoption of technology much slower than it might be in something like, let's say, publishing. Uh, so I think there's a lot yet to be done um, that doesn't require crypto. People sometimes go, the reason we don't have health records is because we didn't have crypto. I don't think that's why we don't have health records, medical health records. We don't have medical health records because there are structural issues, incentive issues in the healthcare industry that make it hard to want to have those. So that's one massive sector in the economy. Another massive sector in the economy is education. Uh, again, if you look at most students' lives, Yes, they may get their homework assignment over the internet from their um, teacher. Yes, they may uh, do some online research. But for the most part, people still go through K through 12 and then college and then graduate school pretty much the same way that before the internet. Just those two sectors, which combined happen to be massive, are examples of how little we've truly digitized the economy. And for that reason, I'm convinced that we can continue to invest in non-blockchain-based systems for a very, very long time. Now, over on the blockchain side, I very much think that we are in this infrastructure phase. It is so hard to do even the simplest things. And if we look at what actually has been built that is truly decentralized and that has real usage, you can't actually point to a lot of things. Uh, CryptoKitties is still um, one of the largest and most active smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, So I think we are in very, very early innings. And that means for investors, I believe that one needs to pace oneself because if one sort of sprays out all one's bullets in this early phase and sort of goes all in, um, then when the correction comes and there will be a correction, uh, of that, I have no doubt. Um, then one has very little credibility with the people who supply money. Now, if, you, if you're investing your own funds, you know, do as you please, but we're investing other people's money. And so I think we owe it to our investors to sort of say, look, we think this is super interesting. We're going to make investments here, but we're also going to pace ourselves because we think that this is not a question of a one or two year sprint. This is a question of a multi-decadal 
development that is going to take place here. Um, I would also caution, though, that technology is always just a new set of capabilities. And whenever you have a new set of capabilities, you can use them for good things and for bad things. So I encounter many people in the crypto space who are like, we're building something that's decentralized. Decentralized is good. The thing we're building is good because it's decentralized. And it's kind of almost like a tautological um, chain of reasoning. When instead it's sort of like, hey, we're building things that are decentralized. That's a new set of capabilities that we didn't have before. We didn't have databases, as I said before, that aren't really controlled by any one entity or a small set of entities. Um, That's a great new set of capabilities, but it's very easy to see how you can use that set of capabilities for good things and for bad things. When we made the transition from the, say, agrarian age to the industrial age, um, we left some people behind. Do you see anyone getting left behind in the knowledge age, in our transition to the knowledge age, independent of whether in the fork of the road it goes super well or super poorly? Well, I think at the moment we are on a road to leave a lot of people behind. Um, And um, I don't think it has to be that way. Uh, You know, we have uh, created um, lots of ways that lock people in. and make it very hard for them to change. Now, I, I think this, by the way, is a multi-generational change, so I don't think this will work for everybody in any case. But, um, you know, right now, there are parts of the world where when you're not wealthy, you can live a very good life. You can have access to public transport and libraries and swimming pools, and, you know. Um, and there are other parts of the world where when you're um, poor, you are in a very, very tough position. And you can easily imagine a world where we undermine taxation, where we undermine um, infrastructure spending, where we enable a few people to have access to extraordinary medicine, but the vast bulk of people to have access to very little. Sort of, uh, you know, if you want to think in Elysium style, um, uh, you know, in that movie, kind of extraordinary level of difference between ultra-wealthy and and, and ultra-poor. Similarly, you know, you can envision a world in which we um, make great progress towards living together peacefully, and conversely, you can envision a world where, because of decentralization, the ability to enforce certain basic uh, agreements breaks down. Let's go back to the example of Facebook from earlier. Zuckerberg, in his testimony to Congress, often talked about our community. Well, there's no community of two billion people. It's just the world. <laughs> so, which is why Facebook constantly finds itself embroiled in like one party saying, hey, you didn't enforce this enough, another party saying, hey, you censored me. Um, because it's not a resolvable thing at the level of two billion people. But if you go the exact opposite direction, and you would assume that we just built totally decentralized systems, there are failure modes of those systems as well. One failure mode of those types of systems is that people wind up just talking to people who have exactly the same opinion that they have. You know, if you're a 9-11 truther, for example, you can spend all day, every day, just reading materials that guarantee and proof against any doubt that 9-11 was an inside job. Um, And you can only talk to other people who feel that way. Um, So there are ways that those systems can break down uh, also. And the idea to just say, hey, you know, we're trying to get away from this 
censorship, which I agree, it's a good thing. I don't want Mark Zuckerberg and co deciding what constitutes, you know, um, speech and, and protected speech or free speech. But conversely, to sort of think, hey, it's all going to automatically be good if we go to the decentralized world, that world has its own failure modes and breakdown modes. And I think we uh, owe it to ourselves to be honest about the fact that it's not just automatically going to be good, it's going to have its own problems. And doesn't mean we shouldn't build it, but we should be cognizant of those problems and we should think about how we think those problems will be dealt with. And uh, I'm sorry, I lied. One, one more question, which <laughs> is what, what do you think is important uh, that you're doing personally to prepare to transition into this new age? Well, for now, the most important thing I'm doing is writing this book, um, World After Capital. I'm actually not doing much writing these days because my right arm is immobilized. Um, but hopefully uh, that's another week or two um, before I'm back to typing. That's one thing I'm doing. Another thing I'm doing is I'm investing. You know, I'm investing in companies that I believe and I'm backing projects that I believe um, can be part and parcel of um, getting us there. Uh, you know, the, made the original investment in Blockstack um, when it was called One Name um, because I believe self-sovereign identity is like a crucial component um, to the type of uh, world that I envision. This has been the Internet 3.0. I'm your host, Zach Valenti. Albert's book, World After Capital, is available at worldaftercapital.com and his blog is at continuations.com. If you like the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a top rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on Twitter. Albert Wenger is at Albert Wenger. Munib Ali is at Munib. And I'm at Zach Valenti. Please let me know who you'd love to hear featured on this show. Music in this episode is by Andrew Apple Pie. Hear more at andrewapplepie.com. You can find out more about the show at internet3podcast.com. And if you're interested in the future of decentralized apps, either using them or building them, you can learn more at blockstack.org. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to check out episode two of the Internet 3.0 featuring Brendan Ike. It's available now wherever you listen to podcasts.